Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It's the My First Gig Podcast. Whoa. Sharing stories of first gigs and shows. Good evening, good afternoon, good morning, good night. Welcome to my first gig with me, Dwayne Dugan. Here we are, another week, another podcast. Will they ever end? They've only been back for four weeks after being gone for two years. Let's not talk about the end just yet. Let's just talk that we're here. But funny enough, this was the last podcast that was meant to happen in 2020. So this is a isolation interview eight weeks into the pandemic and it's with my guest reese james today so it's a bit of a strange one i i was editing this so that the files got corrupt but i learned that if i chucked them the if i put the mp3s or the wavs or whatever they are onto an sd card put it back into my zoom played it through and then put it back on my computer guess what it worked so thankfully i saved everything and then i sent reese an email being like hey how are you I'm going to put out a podcast uh, next week with us. We've already done it. It was two years ago. You've definitely forgotten about it. And you're going to be talking a lot about the pandemic. All the best. Hope you're well. So uh, what I've decided to do, as if you are a Patreon subscriber, you get them early. You get them ad-free. And you get them extended. And I thought the extended bit can be a lot of the pandemic chat so we have a fun conversation about what Reese was up to and just uh yeah it's it's an interesting listen to go about you know remembering what we were doing just to keep saying day to day just to have anything to do so that's what we chat about today so when the interview kicks off we're going to go straight in to the first general question which is what is his first memory of comedy so we'll uh, join with that in a little while it's late here it's 20 to 2 in the morning, recording this now. But thankfully, got this uh, beautiful light that uh, is making me look nice and fresh. Curtains provided by uh, curtains.com. Use promo code Dwayne if you shop there. Been a busy, uh, busy couple of days. I was down home in Cork City in Ireland, uh, lis- uh, listening, no, gigging last night. It was a, a double bill with me and uh, my girlfriend, Fiona Frawley. She was the headliner. We met some friends for dinner beforehand, and they, my mate Darren made a lot of jokes uh, about how the poster was Fiona Frawley plus, plus guests, and how a triumphant return to my hometown led to me being advertised as plus guest. And I just think, do you know what? I'm going to get a far more mentions on Twitter. If you search on Twitter, Dwayne Dugan, 
it's generally just me doing my tweets. But if you search plus guests, millions, millions. So I'm going to play around with this uh, this week. My first gig plus guest, but the guest is me. And the guest is Reese James. This rambles. You can. This is when you can tell it's two o'clock in the morning. So yeah, a couple of weeks into uh, our new house, we now have a desk. This wasn't here last week, so uh, do you know what? I don't have to hold the camera. I don't have to hold the microphone on a mattress that doubles up as a couch. So it's nice. Things are a bit hectic at the minute, but enjoying getting these podcasts out. Most, if not all, of the episodes in this season have already been recorded, so that's nice, and some great ones out there, but I could hope there's people starting to tour Ireland again over the next couple of months, so hopefully starting to record some episodes for season four. There will be a season four. There won't be a two-year gap this time. Uh, I'm going to do 12 episodes in season three. Haven't said this yet, so here we go. 12 episodes in season three, because season two ended after eight instead of the ten, so the 12 will bring it up to 30 because it was meant to be 30 after season 3, take a break for a month or two, come back with 10 more for season 4, and then it'll go back to 10 per season. Yeah, so it's fun. Looking back at the pandemic two years ago, what we were doing, like there was a while where you weren't allowed to leave your house, and then freedom was you're allowed to walk by yourself doing nothing two kilometers from your house in the uk i think it was different so if you're listening in the uk or even further abroad like i don't think they realize how strict ireland was we were like in the top whatever percent of like strictest countries in the world and we weren't in the top countries of like low rate spread so it was very frustrating like we didn't get shows back i've spoken about this before we didn't get shows back to earlier this year we had about two months, not even two months, six weeks in 2021 when a lot of people came back in the UK in like the summer of 2021. We didn't really come back till about six months ago. So it's weird now that we're back. It's so great though, but like, because you don't even remember that we were gone for so long. But we were, you know, we were so just like trapped in that life of literally going nowhere, seeing nothing. Going to the shops was the exciting thing. And... um I remember like meeting friends for like beers in the streets of Dublin and that was illegal. And like it wasn't drinking on the streets that it was legal, it was being with a mate. So it was kind of nice though. I like the, uh, I like being a bit of a criminal, you know, because I'm not really a criminal. I play by the rules, okay? I cross the road when the green man tells me to, all right? I, uh, that's the only rule I actually follow. Or doing rules I can think of at the top of my head. I'm not a rule breaker, do you know? So uh, being illegal. So I used to travel up and down between Cork and Dublin all the time to see Fiona because we were living together during the pandemic. And that was illegal. So do you know what? They say a girl loves a bad boy. Well, that's what kept her. You know, long distance is hard. Not when uh, not when you get old Dwayne Crim man, my god, what am I talking about? I don't know. Thanks for listening, anyway. This is getting strange. I'm gonna, I'm gonna crack on and just do the plugs and pop into the interview. If you're listening to this on uh, Spotify, iTunes, or any of those on Wednesday or Wednesday after, why don't you get them early? Why don't you get them ad free? Why don't you get them extended? Somebody did mention to me that the Spotify ads 
don't show up. So when I talk about being ad-free, they're like, oh, it's already ad-free. But don't listen on Spotify then. You know? I don't care if you like Spotify. Spotify is for music. I love Spotify. I listen to Spotify every day, but I never use it for podcasts. And that's just out of preference. Because I get to save my podcast in the podcast app. But now I'm going to say it's because I support podcasters. I don't know why my ads don't show up on Spotify. They show up elsewhere. That's confusing. A little bit alarming. But even if you don't get ads, you still want to add, you still want it early. You still want it extended. Do you want to hear about what Reese James is getting up to? What he's doing online with his time during the pandemic? Yeah, I think you do. Head on over to patreon.com forward slash my first gig pod. And for just one euro a month, you can support the pod. For five euro a month, you can be sound. Because look, it's five euro a month. Come on. All these other places charge you 15 quid. Five quid. All right. Bonus episodes are going to start the week after next. Uh, bonus episodes are going to feature Irish podcasts telling their Irish uh, comedians telling me about their first gig. And um, yeah, I'm not sure who my guests are going to be, but I'm going to start them very soon. I need to get up off me hole and do those. Uh, if you don't want to spend any money, but you do enjoy it, then just give a little shout out online. Just tell people to follow at my first gig pod, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and the likes. If you really love me, then go follow me at Dwayne Dugan. But uh, if you're just here for Reese James, then let's just crack on with Reese James, okay? As I said, we're going to join in progress. The opening ramble is exclusive to Patreon, but we are going to join in progress. The chat when I ask Reese what's his first memories of comedy, whatever they may be, however he interprets the word comedy, and we're gonna we're gonna kick off with that. So sit back, relax, listen to my first gig with me, Dwayne Dugan. My guest today, Reese James. Ah, first memory of comedy in general. I mean, probably, almost, this won't be the first time, but the youngest thing was probably my dad used to always have the Monty Python albums in the car when we'd go on long journeys and he'd always play these Monty Python, of, of all the songs they would have in Monty Python's various films and sketch show. And they were massively inappropriate for me being maybe 10, 9. And I remember it was like a classic sitcom-y parents thing of, you know, these, these songs, these Monty Python songs would be on um, about like penises. There was like the penis song was one of them. And there's some, by the way, that are a little bit racist, actually. There's this one about <laughs> called I Like Chinese that is absolutely unacceptable. Um, and these songs would come on and then my mum would hit my dad in the car and be like Michael which is his name because she's not a maniac she'd be like Michael you can't play this and then but we'd find it hilarious and there was like one where it's like he was like I've got um uh I've got 50 million pounds in my pajamas I've got 60,000 french francs in my fridge and when you're nine years old I know that Monty Python are known for being funny but when you're nine years old there's nothing funnier than that I mean that's the funniest thing in the world it sounds insane um I know it's aimed at adults as well but that I definitely remember just like losing my mind laughing at that sort of stuff that's probably the earliest thing that I can properly remember also remember on a school trip once um like uh, a school trip where we did like a week away in a place called tantroid in wales where we camped there was this talent show at the end of it and a boy called uh john richardson not that one decided he wanted to do stand-up comedy and we would have been about 10 then and he was telling um just like old jokes old joke book jokes and he wasn't really in our friendship group 
But I remember him getting up on stage and like the jockiest jock of the school, like turning around to all the people where I was sat and said, what he's about to do is really brave. So make sure that you laugh, even if it's not funny. And it was so not in character and not in keeping with what every film and TV drama will tell you about the jock type character. I just didn't really understand that logic. And that man is my friend and he has come to watch me do gigs and sat stony face <laughs> silent throughout them. So, I mean, it's fucking bullshit that he was so generous as, as a 10 year old. And then suddenly, well, yeah, it's br- now he thinks it's not brave if you're an adult. It's just uh, delusional, I guess. But that, those are my earliest ones, I think. So my first stand-up gig was watching a, what, a fellow pupil deliver dad jokes in a talent show. And he did smash it, to be fair to him. So there you go. Did you enter the talent show yourself? I don't think so. Oh, actually, I remember I, I ended up on stage. There was like a group of my mates wanted to sing some song or something, which is just like it, it was like one of those songs that just got sung the whole week. It was kind of a personal joke. I don't think I was really involved in the joke, but I do remember ending up on stage desperately trying to be involved in the moment and kind of like in the background singing along, but not really knowing the words to this song with all these guys who like, it wasn't really, it it was one of those things of like, oh, these kids are just kind of hijacking this talent. They weren't really doing it for the talent. They were just like, oh, there's a stage. We can sing this song that we've been doing as a joke that no one else cares about. So I was on stage in the, you know, I was in the chorus of that but just because I was desperately clinging on to any semblance of friendship. And possibly even just, you know, that little bit of attention that oh, absolutely, might just yeah. come in hand, handy yeah. later on. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. So, like, when do you, do you, do you go see any live comedy before you decide to start doing it? Or do you only start, like, you know, in comedy clubs or whatever? Or, um, well, I, I went to see I, touring comics. So I started quite young. So I was... My, I did my first gig when I was 17, so I couldn't really go to comedy clubs because sure, yeah. they're pretty much all in pubs or they just like have a bouncer or something. So I didn't really do that. I think I... So I definitely went to see touring shows when I was in my uh, teenage years. I went to see Milton Jones with my dad. Um, he got tickets as a Christmas present and I went with him to see Milton Jones. And I went to see Ross Noble when I was like 14. I organized, it was like quite local. And I organized a trip of like 10 of my mates to go and see Ross Noble. And definitely loads of them hadn't heard of Ross Noble. Like he wasn't, he, he's, he was big, but he, he wasn't like, you know, proper household name. Everyone knows this man yet. So we went to see Ross Noble and Ross Noble and Milton Jones, two very different comedians. Um, and I remember at Milton Jones's gig, just being really excited by the fact that I knew who the opener was. It was Chris Martin and I just was so buzzing. I was like, I know who this is because I was obsessed with comedy by that point. I don't think I'd done a gig yet. I was probably 16, but I'd sort of knew I want to get into stand-up. So I'd done all my research and I listened to everyone's podcast. And this is back in the day when a podcast is quite a weird thing to have. Um, not like now when we all have them, Dwayne. Uh, you and I both. Too many of them. <laughs> exactly. Too many yeah. of them. Um, but, Turn this off right now. Yeah, good point, actually. Let's get rid of them. Um, but... Uh, <laughs> But yeah, so it, I, I just knew him from his podcast with Carl Donnelly and I'd watched some of his clips on YouTube and I was just, it was just really exciting that I knew the opener. And then beyond that, there was one gig I went to at the Good Ship in Kilburn, which is no longer there. Well, the venue's still there, but the gig's not there anymore. It was called the, back then, it was called the Porthole Comedy Club. And uh, I remember that Jack Whitehall was doing an Edinburgh preview and I didn't really have a concept of what that was. I was just about to try and do comedy, I think. I th- or maybe I had done a gig by that point. It was either like the week I did my first gig just after, or it was like the week before. But I emailed in advance to the promoter to say, 
me and my mates are 17. Can we still come? And he said, yeah, just don't tell anyone you're 17. It's not, he was like, it's pretty low key. No one's going to bounce you, but just keep it quiet. And then we got there and I wanted to watch Jack Whitehall do this Edinburgh preview and Doc Brown was on and I, maybe I'd seen him before and I thought he was great. He hadn't done any telly yet, but I just knew he was great. And then we went to watch those two there and, um, Within about 10 seconds, he he was comp- there was only about 10 people in the audience and this guy who was the promoter was comparing it and he said, what's your name? And I said, Reese. And he said, oh, you're that 17-year-old that I told to not tell anyone he's 17. <laughs> and I was like, oh, good. Oh, that's handy. <laughs> but then obviously the venue were just like, yeah, whatever, there's 10 people. We're not going to kick out five of you. So we just got through it and watched that. And uh, it's quite a weird gig to see. Like the first time you're in an actual comedy club environment is an hour-long Edinburgh preview and someone else doing new stuff. Uh, when you're half the audience but I don't know it was quite useful given that that is what so much of it is you know it it was at least like an honest reflection of what I was about to step into yeah and it's nice being able to pitch it out I I I spent a year in London and I lived on the Kilburn High Road and when I heard that the good ship was there I was very excited went up exactly it was actually it was Edinburgh preview as well I I saw said Fern Brady's Edinburgh preview it was like 1 p.m on a Sunday and then I think like a week or two later, they upped and moved to Camden. And I was like, that's a good sign then for the local area. Yeah. But- <laughs> well, I lived there as well. So I lived there for like three years, not on the Kilburn High Road, but just off it, um, technically in Wilsdon Green, but it's basically just up that road and then as yeah. I left. And so I would always, when Ben Vanderveld was running it, he would often call, I lived with a comedian called Adam Hess. He would often call one of us if someone dropped out last minute and say, shit, can you run down to the good ship? And just do new stuff because no one's here. And I think Adam did it a few times, but pretty much every time he phoned me, I was just like true to form. I was just like, oh, no, I can't because I hate it. <laughs> <laughs> um, so like, yeah, so you're saying you're obsessed with comedy. You know, you go see Milton Jones, you know, the opener, you, you know, you're, you're, you're searching out these local comedy clubs. Do like what was at what point do you stop being a fan of comedy as you're kind of getting older in these teenage years and thinking I, I might actually go do this myself? So there's a two, well, there's a couple of things that led to that. So the first one is I uh, ran for head boy of my school in sixth form purely because I wanted to do the speech. So I didn't want the job. It wasn't really a job, was it, being head boy? But I, I just did it because I knew you get to stand in front of all of the sixth form and deliver a speech. And, you know, I've got a captive audience and they're exactly my demographic. So surely I can make this funny. So I just wrote a funny speech. That's all I cared about was writing a funny speech. I didn't, it was a funny speech. It was definitely really funny. (laughs) What was embarrassing about it is I was so nervous that I did it in someone else's accent. And that's awkward because um, everyone in that room had known me for 10 years. So everyone knew that I spoke like this. But when I stood up, I was basically went, hello, mates. I want to run for your Ed boy. (laughs) Because I was really into Russell Brand at the time. I thought Russell Brand was so exciting. He was pretty new. He'd like presenting Big Brother or whatever. And I just sort of like, just instinctively, my voice just went to, here's the reasons I'll be a good Ed boy at his school. Um, And so... And then afterwards, everyone was like, that was really funny. What was that voice about? Was that? And I was just like, oh, I was just parodying. And then I would just sort of tail off. And people would just be like, oh, okay. Um, I didn't win Head Boy. It went to someone who did a very earnest and genuine speech um, who made actual promises. And that person was John Richardson, who had done stand-up. 
at that school trip uh just 10 years ago um so see that's, that's all that prep that he had isn't it exactly he he was over the nerves he'd already done his first gig he was fine with it but i got the buzz from those laughs that i got for that speech i was like oh my god that was so exciting um and it was also one of those things where like someone who you know i, I was doing a lot of I, I did a lot of like plays and like drama things when i was younger much younger than that but getting a laugh when you're reading a script you're sort of taught to pause by a director whereas when you've just written the speech and you're not sure you're going to get laughs what would happen is like i said i said my opening line and got a big laugh but i had i didn't stop speaking because i just like i was so nervous so it was just like got the big laugh and then just immediately i was like just speaking much louder over the laugh to try and make them stop laughing because i was just like just go and finish it um, which obviously is the opposite of what you're supposed to do as a comedian. But that, pretty soon after that, I, so I had emailed. I knew I wanted to do comedy. I was just obsessed with comedy and I'd been writing uh, little jokes down, really Jimmy Carr style jokes. Obviously, nowhere near the level of what Jimmy Carr was doing, but um, jokes that sort of structure from Jimmy Carr's first couple of DVDs, and which I just watched over and over again when I was starting out. I'd written a few down and I'd like say them to my parents occasionally, but a lot of them were quite filthy because they were trying to be Jimmy Carr. And then I emailed this uh, venue called the Hat Factory in Luton and I, they did an open mic thing. And so I said, uh, Luton was like 10 minutes drive away from the town I lived in. So I just emailed them saying, oh, I'm a teenager, but I want to try a stand-up comedy. Can I come and do your um, comedy night or your open mic night? And they said, oh, it doesn't exist anymore. It's gone. Sorry. <laughs> Um, and then about six months later, and that was before I did the head boy speech. And about six months later, some guy emailed me saying, do you want to come and we're doing an open mic night again? Do you want to come and do stand up still? Cause we could put you on the bill. And you know, when you send that first email asking to do it, you, you never really expect it to happen anyway. So you're just sort of doing it like, well, at least I sent the email and now I'll never think about that again. And I'll never do it. It was just like one of those things like hope they don't reply in the back of my mind. But then because he emailed me saying, oh, do you want to come and do it? I actually remember. And also this ages that moment. I was on the family computer, um, this in the hallway. And my mum, I showed her the email. And then I said, I remember showing her. I was like, oh, do you want to come and do this gig? And I said to her, well, I guess I've got to stop making excuses and just do it. And then she said, you're 17. So <laughs> you've not been making excuses. You're not allowed to do this. And then, but she was like, yeah, cool. Okay, it's up to you. Go and do it. Um, so then that was what it was that prompted it. I was like, just because that guy emailed me saying, do you want to do it? It was just basically, I was like, if I say no now, I'll probably never do it, but I kind of have to do this now because it's, you know, landed on my lap. And like, because I guess you'd send that first email and then you got the, the replies and it didn't exist. I guess that time passed and you were like, well, that's, you know, I've done my part kind of thing. Or was it a case of like, I, I'm assuming that maybe somewhere down the line, you might've, you might've stumbled onto it again, but if it was, I guess, if it wasn't for that email, you you'd stopped at least at that moment, kind of pursuing it, had you? I think I probably had such a I have such a privileged upbringing that, uh, and not a lot. I didn't go to private school or anything like that. I just had it was just like every door was open to me from the start. So it was always a I'm from the of the generation of you can do whatever you set your mind to bollocks, and I come from a socioeconomic background where that is true. Uh, so I remember that I just had in my head. I will be a comedian. So they, it was just from the moment I decided, oh God, I love watching these comedians. This is great. I just thought, well, I'll, be, I'll do that. I, I will be that eventually. But pretty much, and this is why I wanted to go and watch Jack Whitehall, pretty much every comedian that was famous, which when you're 
that age and you're not in comedy is every comedian because it's really hard to do the research to find out who the others are. And that's why it was so exciting to see Chris Martin open for Milton Jones. But every comedian who is on TV in your head is all the comedians and all of them were 40. So that's why I was sort of like, ah, I'll be a comedian eventually, but I'll just have to find something to do until then. Um, because you can't become a comedian until you're 40. So when people like Russell Brand, who is a bit older than Jack Whitehall, but still quite young compared to the rest of them, and then Jack Whitehall came on the scene, who was 18, it was like, oh shit, you can just do it. You can just do it now. So when I got that email, it did feel like it was just at the time Jack Whitehall, I'd heard of Jack Whitehall because he was 18 and on TV for the first time. And it was just so exciting. 18-year-old comedian on TV. And then I think I found Daniel Sloss, who was the similar, maybe even younger. So it was just like, oh, right. I've got this email saying, do you want to do this gig? And I'm 17. Well, this will be me in, in a year's time. I will be as famous as these people and as successful from doing three gigs. And this will be the start. And I'll go and do this one. And then that's it. It'll all blow up. Uh, obviously, that's not the case. You then go and do a couple of gigs and realize, oh, everyone's 18. Literally, <laughs> there's no gimmick to being a kid on the circuit because everyone in these open mics is a teenager, except, you know, there's a few 35-year-olds. But so I couldn't believe how many young people were doing it and how many people sort of my school year were out there. So it was that, yeah, it was definitely, I got the email. When I first sent the email to answer your question and they said, no, this doesn't exist anymore, I just thought, well, it doesn't matter because, you know, it's on my 40th birthday, suddenly I'm playing the Apollo. I just had in the back of my mind, that will be the case. And then the second email is the thing that made me go, oh, fuck it. Why not start now? How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. So, yeah, so you're saying like... You've been like writing down these jokes, testing them out on your parents. You've been doing the speeches for Headboy in school and stuff like that. So like when you actually go to this open mic, I'm assuming probably like what, five minutes or something. Are you very over prepared at this stage now? Kind of like, are you like, right, I'm ready. I can do this. Well, do you remember when you first started writing material? You've got no concept of time. You don't really know what five minutes is in speech. Yeah. Uh, so you go five minutes, is that five jokes? I mean, what is that? And obviously it's hundreds more than five jokes, but I think they said 
come to do this. There'll be loads of different things on. It's, um, you know, I think they said do five minutes. And I remember on the night, I definitely did nine minutes. I do remember coming up going, oh, fucking I did nine minutes. That I was so excited that I'd done too long because obviously you're constantly worried it's too short. I still worry about that when I do an Edinburgh preview. Sometimes even doing a tour show, I'm like, I just suddenly get in my head. It's one of the weirdest anxieties, doing a tour show that you've done for months over and over again. You'll just get to a venue and suddenly go, fuck, what if this is suddenly 20 minutes? And so, especially because I do two sections on tour, and it's always the first section. I'm like, fuck, what if I just only got 10 minutes? I'm fucked. And then you go, I go on and often I come off and I go, oh, that was 45 minutes. It was only supposed to be 30. I mean, what am I doing? How do I not know this yet? I've been doing this for so long. I've literally been on tour. I was on tour last night. I did the same jokes. I know how long it takes. But I definitely had that same feeling with that first one where I was like, oh, God, I need loads and loads of stuff. So I just... Every joke I'd ever written, I just got, I just, I didn't even really put them in an order because it didn't look like Jimmy Carr had them in an order when you watched him. It looked like he just said one, got the laugh, and then basically moved on to the next topic, which, you know, isn't true and is not what he was doing. They were, they were linked, a lot of them, um, and they're sectioned up to make sense. But as a fan, you don't notice that. Well, not, certainly not as a kid. So I just had random assortment. And also, I didn't really have any that connected. So I just had random assortment of one-liners. So I just went... And did one-liners and I, yeah, I don't know how I stretched it to nine minutes. I think I made some comments on the gig or something like that, but I definitely remember being, yeah, you're right. I was concerned about that amount of time. They said do five, but they were, I got there and they were pretty relaxed. It was just a bloke with a clipboard, like, yeah, whatever you want, do whatever you want. Like, yeah. So what, what's the night look like? Is it a ton of people performing? Is there, is there many audience members there? Is this the first time that you've been down to this place? Yes, it was the first time I'd been there and it was a fucking disgrace. I mean, everything I'm about to describe to you sounds like a nightmare. So it's a mixed bill of mainly emo bands and teenagers in emo bands. Um, It was a real big emo era. There was the scene kids is what they were called where I was scene. And like, it was really like everyone like black hair kind of, it was like the MySpace era. So, you know, that high angle black hair, eyeliner, guy liner type era. And there was loads of bands like that. And um, I got there and there was one other comedian who had already been on by the time I arrived. So they didn't tell me when the event started. They just said, great, it's at 8.45. And they meant that's when I would be on. So I basically got there at 8.45. Obviously, luckily, everything runs behind. So I got there. I said to the guy, I was clearly so nervous. I said to the guy, is there, has there been any other comedy? Because there was, I could see that I was like, there's three bands and then you. And he said, yeah, there was one other comedian. And he pointed at this bloke, this probably this 38-year-old bloke. He said, there's been one other comedian who's over there. And I said, oh, what was he? Was he good? Was he funny? And then the guy just went, he was very angry. (laughs) And I was like, oh, God, okay. And then, um, so the audience is packed. It's absolutely packed. It's not a big room, but I've, I've been back since, actually, to watch a band play. But it was not a big room. It maybe sat probably 60 but everyone in this gig is sat cross-legged on the floor because they are all 15, pretty much. I mean, everyone was like a fan of one of these, like one of their boyfriends was in an emo band or something like that that they were there to watch. So it's just all these girls who were like 15, 16, and then there's a couple of parents sort of stood at the back. But mostly it's people sat cross-legged on the floor. Um, The stage is just covered in like musical things. So like there's all these guitar stands and like even like music, like where music stands where they'd put note like sheet music and lyrics which sounds insane for a band um but also there's 
a massive drum kit taking up most of the stage. I got to the venue and I said to the person behind the bar, is there any chance I could put my coat? I was in the middle of winter. So I kind of put this, my coat behind the bar. I don't want to wear it on the stage. And they were like, no. And I said, I've got to go on stage in a sec. I, I can't, I don't want to wear it. And they were just like, yeah, you can't put your coat behind here. And I was, I was on my own. So I didn't want to just leave it. Uh, so I walked onto the stage when I was announced and then I took my coat off on stage and then just rested it on the symbols of the drum kit, which was like, in hindsight, it actually seems like sort of a baller move <laughs> yeah. to like spend the first like 20 seconds of my set in silence as I just put my coat. So like everyone is there for an evening of music and then I just go, fuck that and put all my clothes on top of this, all the music, where the music happens and then just go now time for some jokes. But um, I didn't mean it to be arrogant. It was actually because for the opposite reason because i had no authority to put my coat somewhere else i then as i got to the stage could see oh fuck just to my right there's a backstage like there's a green room i'm, I'm allowed to go in there <laughs> and just put my stuff in there but i couldn't tell that because the angry comedian was sat at the back of the room so i assumed that's where all the acts had to be um but yeah that was it i got driven to that gig by my parents uh i wouldn't let them both of them took me to that gig and then i said no you may not come in and watch and then they went to a pub around the corner and then uh, just said, call me when you're out and then got picked up and driven home afterwards. That's the, God. Oh God, that's so lame. Like for that first gig, I, I avoided all of those, thankfully, because whenever I heard that they existed, the, the comedy music mixed open mics, they sound like the absolute worst places just because yeah, I, I like it. They terrify me. The idea of going up there. And oh, I'd like, never oh, do it now. Yeah, I'm I, going I mean, to tell you jokes when you've gig. come here to see not comedy i think it's purely out of naivety i had no idea yeah that i didn't really know that it was going to be like that for some reason i assumed oh this would be full of people like me who also want to try their hand at comedy i think i thought it would be like that maybe there'll be some poets but you know i thought it would be like a kind of a at least a spoken word evening and then i was like i got there and then i was so naive to how this worked because i was so green and young that i just thought well there's no reason this wouldn't be good we're all just trying something there's no reason anyone wouldn't want to support my, like, even though they're clearly there for an evening of emo music, the absolute opposite of what you want is to laugh. If you're there for some, some emo music, like you're, you're, you're heckling yeah, there exactly. <laughs> yeah. So it was a bit weird. Uh, do you remember your opening joke that night? That very first one? I don't think I remember my opening joke. I definitely remember what, whatever the opening joke was. I remember after I said it, I sort of went, uh, because it was a bit of a, a bit of a gag like parney gag and just to yeah i uh, just to like hammer home these are jokes i was sort of like Ew. and then everyone sort of went we like that which at the time i thought was encouraging now it would be the absolute worst reaction i could possibly get to a joke if i now told a joke on stage and the audience went we i would know oh that means that joke is terrible and the audience are humoring me you now owe everything to that way though that's where it all started if it had been silent, that would have been dreadful and I would have never done it, said another joke. Yeah, but the fact that there was some noise, I was like, okay, great. And then they, you know, there was a mixed bag. It was one-liners. I'd never tried any of them. And just like, you know, Milton Jones or Jimmy Carr doing new stuff, it would be a mixed bag um, now. So obviously doing your first ever gig with one-liners is a mixed bag. None of them are usable. I remember some of the jokes from that set. I don't remember the one I opened with. The one that sticks out clearest in my mind is this is because this is such a Jimmy Carr joke structure is that I used to say, fuck me, I hate this is I don't stand by this. I have to say <laughs> that I was 16 when I wrote this. It was 
Um, a dog is a man's best friend because they don't talk and you can shag them whenever you want. Only joking. They do talk in films. That was it, which is like just really copying Jimmy Carr's only joking and then twist on the thing you thought he wasn't joking about, thing that he used to do all the time, that fake only joking and then, you know, reveal the other side of it. And I remember when I wrote, I remember coming up with that joke and being like, oh God, great. I'm the, I'm the next Jimmy Carr. This is incredible. <laughs> and then going and saying it to a bunch of emo kids at this gig. And they probably did laugh. They probably thought it was funny because they were 16. They probably, you know, it would have been chuckle at most, but it would have been something. And I'm like, oh, good. Okay, good. I can do this. I don't really remember any of the others. Um, I had this, uh, I, I think I had this really long-winded pun about an iron uh, being like hot and heavy I love my iron's really hot and heavy. I'm always falling out with my iron. It's really hot and heavy. So I told it we need to straighten things out. And do you know what he replied? Shh. I remember like, it's just like so many fucking lame puns about an iron. <laughs> and also like, this is the same comedian who just told you that he fucks dogs. <laughs> is now doing this like really sweet pun about irons. It's like, well, what, what are you? You haven't got a voice. The, what, what image are you presenting? What's the character here? Um, that would have been definitely a wee rather than a laugh, I imagine. Well, getting away from uh, getting like the 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 reaction of them just going way to you, uh, you know, if there are a bunch of emo kids going to see music, that sounds far more encouraging than I guess they would be. So, like, for it, all in context and for for what it was, it did it go well? Yeah, I mean, I've yeah, I've certainly had worse gigs than that in the last year. Um, it was. Uh, it was great. I mean, it, it felt like, I mean, I would, if I watched it back, I would know this went terribly. Obviously, this went fucking awfully. But on the night, I came off and I was like, fuck me, that couldn't have gone better. And actually, even the other comedian who was there was like, sorry, that was your first gig. I mean, that was amazing. I mean, clearly that comedian was fucking terrible. Um, I didn't see him. <laughs> but clearly from the feedback, he was like, what? And then he was like, God, that was brilliant. And then even the promoter was like, fucking hell, well done, mate. I mean, like, Every time a comedian comes here, it's normally absolutely awful. But that was all right. And I was like, okay, great. I mean, that's all you can hope for. Uh, so it definitely went well. Like in the context of the evening and it being a first gig and all that sort of stuff, it went well. In any other context, it was obviously awful. But I definitely remember like there was a big round of applause at the end. Everyone's faces in the audience I could see because it wasn't lit like a proper gig. And I could see that everyone was very encouraging whether they actually liked it or not. But they were teenagers. So you wouldn't, it's not like they were, you know, just being kind because it's an honest age. So they would have been going, this is shit to each other if it, if they really thought it was shit. So they seemed like they liked it. And then I remember, yeah, obviously it came off and then absolutely buzzing. And then of course it's like, right, well, I've done one now. So ready to, I'm ready to, you know, be playing stadiums, I think. Well, I'm, it sounds like either they were very encouraging or maybe before you arrived, the MC went up and said, now look, this is very brave. <laughs> No matter what happens, yeah, you must laugh. <laughs> he just went over, have you heard of the Make-A-Wish Foundation? <laughs> uh, so, yeah, so let, that's it. Like, one gig down, are you like, because I know you went to college, but, like, are you now going, no, this is it. I'm I'm going to keep doing this now. Yeah, I went into school the next day, uh, and I had a couple of mates. So, like, I was always writing stuff before that. So, like, I would sometimes, I'm the sort of fucking loser who in sixth form would, like, to ask certain friends who was... You know, there's like people who at school are funny, but they're just funny because they like being funny. They're not desperate to be funny. So a lot of them like now just do such boring jobs because they never, 
they never needed to be funny. They just liked being funny. But I always needed it so much that if they were funny and we got on and were friends, I'd be like, right, this weekend, come around to my house and let's write a sitcom. And then I'd, we'd like, I'd like make them come around. We'd sit there for half an hour trying to come up with characters. And then obviously they'd get bored because that is boring. And they'd be like, can we play football? Because we are young. And I'd be like, oh, but we need to get this done because we're going to be stars. Um, so I would do, I'm the sort of person who would do that. So then I came into school the next day and I was like, uh, told all those kind of mates. I was like, I did stand up comedy last night. And then obviously that word got around the sixth form common room quite quickly. And people were like, what happened? And I was like, oh, I did this gig last night. It was mad. I was so nervous, but it went well. And then I had a couple of mates talk to me and be like, can we come? Can we come watch? Can we come watch? And I think maybe five gigs in, I let them come watch. And they always used to talk to me weirdly. I remember about what I should wear. So a lot of them were like, what are you going to wear? What are you going to wear tonight? Like if I was still at school and then I would go and have a gig that night or something and they wouldn't be coming to it, but you know, we'd be talking about it and they'd always be like, and what are you going to wear? And I even remember my mate Cal saying, oh, you should, I had this like um, kind of tracky jacket that I would wear and they weren't, people didn't really wear them um, where I was at the time. And he was like, you should wear that tracky jacket because no one else wears that. So you'll, sta- you'll stand out and you'll have an original image. And I didn't do that. And I, it took me eight more years of doing comedy to think I should have a more original image. I mean, I still don't have an original image, but I definitely had the, the thought has now crossed my mind. And I spent eight years having been given that advice two gigs in by a 17 year old. I ignored <laughs> it. And then later on was like, oh, fuck. Yeah. Quite a lot of people have a really unique image and style for this. And I really don't. And I was like, oh, I should have listened to Cal and worn a tracky jacket back in the day and just made it my <laughs> thing. Now I'd be comfortable doing it. Um, and then, uh, yeah, I was like pretty much after that. So what I did is I just looked up what everyone else did. So I was like, the good thing was that Jack Whitehall, going back to Jack Whitehall, he was so new when he got on TV that all his credits like on his website were for amuse moose competition, laughing horse competition. So you think you're funny, all those things. So even though he was on TV, he was famous to me. That's all it said on his website. So I was like, oh, well, this is the, this is the blueprint. This is what you have to do to get seen. Um, and spotted so I was that's how I heard of all those competitions and so I just entered all of those I was just like okay I'll just write to all of those enter all of those so I did all of those immediately like my second third fourth fifth gig was those competition heats so like a lot of people wait so you think you're funny you can only enter once apparently I think at the time I don't know if that's still true but at the time it was like you can only enter it once um, so loads of people would if you mentioned it were like no I'm gonna wait till next year when I'm a bit better whereas I was so like no right now right now come on, let's start. Let's, I want to, you know, I want to be doing big gigs on my own. So I entered it immediately. And I remember like scraping through the heat and then obviously being fucking terrible in the um, Edinburgh heat when like you got through to the next round. But I just, that's all that a lot of my first gigs, a lot of my only gigs for ages, I didn't really do many open mic things before I left and went to Manchester to go to uni. So all my early stuff was just in London was just competition heats. Must have been very friendly when you we actually start going out and doing, I guess, you know, normal gigs, should I say, like not not competition style. Uh, speaking of those early days, though, in the true, true, lovely, nostalgic spirit of those early days, any horror stories that you remember? One major one, which is um, I did a gong show uh, called Stand Up and Deliver. I want to say it's Stand Up and Deliver. And essentially you 
it was a classic gong show, last five minutes or whatever. And it was like in some basement. It wasn't it wasn't one of those aggressive gong shows, you know. They, there wasn't really a gong atmosphere. They def, the crowd definitely went with the gong idea of holding up the cards if they didn't like you, but it wasn't like a you know, get them off, like all these horror stories you hear about Comedy Store King Gong and all that sort of stuff. I never did that. I did this gong show and the prize the next week was you got to come back the next time and headline and do 15 to 20 minutes. My set when I won the gong show was like, I did like three minutes and then the rest of the set, the joke of it was I only had three minutes of material. I didn't expect to get this far. So I don't know how to fill this last two minutes. Right. And then I was just like kind of improvising, kind of fake improvising occasionally. Like I'd throw in one line as I still had, as if they were just thoughts. But I still also was just improv- the last, you know, the, the fourth minute I probably was improvising and just being like, oh, anyone got any fun games to play? Just as like that was the joke as in like I thought I'd be gonged off. And then I won it. Uh, only two of us beat the gong and then I got chosen as like the best one. So my prize was the next week to come back and headline with 15 minutes, but I only had four minutes of material. So I spent that week trying to write new jokes and like, uh, they're trying to write much more bitty things rather than, um, one liners. But at the time I didn't, I, I kind of just thought that a bit was basically a one liner, but it just took a minute to get to the punchline. So anytime I would write like a long bit, I can picture it in my like documents where I used to write this stuff. It's basically just a one punchline joke that's a paragraph rather than a sentence because I didn't really see that actually comedians are being hilarious on the way to this joke as well. And the punchline is just one part of it. And so I had all these bits. Anyway, I went into this gig and I got there and the standard of the gong show that was on before my headline set was so much higher than the week before. And it was a lot of comedians I'd heard of from, you know, getting to finals of competitions the year before and just like being way more experienced than me. And then, so they were all there and they stayed and watched me have one of the worst gigs in the history of comedy. And also I've been bragging at school, like I'm headlining this gig. I'm already, I'm already headlining. Like I've, I've done six gigs and I'm now headlining. This is crazy. And my, you know, my Facebook status or MSN name, whatever it was, was probably like headlining tonight. And uh, went into this gig. Um, this time, I did think about my image. I wore this. I had a wristband, like a like a bracelet-y type thing. Fuck me! I've never worn one of them in my life. I think I bought it for this gig. Um, as I say, Russell Brand was very popular at the time. I bought it for this gig. Never wore it again. And I wore a big, clean white T-shirt that had the Jaws poster on it. <laughs> and uh, and I've, at this age, by the way, I had really big like hair. It in a Russell Brand. I mean, in like a Noel Fielding way. I was like, I just like, I was really like straightened, but then like messed up hair, just looking like the biggest fucking cunt in the world. I don't know if I'm allowed to say cunt on this. Prick. There you go. Just edit that in. Biggest prick in the world. (laughs) And uh, and then I went on and I opened like, hey. And then I was like, yeah, I'm going to tell you some jokes. And just like really overly confident and then just died so fucking hard, like played to, but I, I was no longer, so they were a gong show crowd but they couldn't gong me up. <laughs> and I was then dying so hard. And a few things happened that are terrible, which is one, I was like, oh, fucking hell. Yeah, this isn't going well. So then I just went, any questions? And then a guy just went, what are you going to do on your gap year? And uh, I hadn't said I was doing a gap year or anything. I clearly just looked that age and I was that age and it smashed it when he said that. And I was like, oh, for fuck's sake. Okay. And then I also had seen Stuart Lee's comedy vehicle the week before and he did that routine about Del Boy falling through the bar where he spends about five minutes lying on the floor going, it's the funniest thing in the world, Stu, he falls through the bar. And me being a fucking idiot who doesn't understand comedy thought that the joke there was that a man is on the floor. So 
midway through this set where I'm dying on my ass, I just lay down on the floor and then just started uh, speaking to them from the floor about how badly it was going. And <laughs> it was fucking awful. It was obviously, it was, yeah, it was terrible. And I got up and everyone was like, fucking hell, you did the time. Um, so fair <laughs> enough. I, res- I respect you for doing the time. And I was like, oh, really? And the promoter went, yeah, you did the time, mate. And, and another like 15 minutes. And I'd done like half an hour. Uh, when, when I really didn't need to, yeah, and that's me, the person who's scared of underrunning all the time, <laughs> overrunning in an absolute car crash, and that, yeah, that was really early on. That was really like five, six gigs in, so that really dented it for a bit. That's that's typical kind of naivety there when you know you're worried about filling fifteen, so you do twice as much at the time. Yeah, and also just like just arrogance of being seventeen, and like I hadn't had a bad gig yet, and I was so I was just like, oh, I just you know, I clearly I'm just brilliant. I'm just always going to smash this. I just wrote these gags, and just everything's gone well, and now I'm headlining already, which is not what that means to headline. If you win a gong show, that's not being a headliner at all. It's just going on last at an open mic. But that's how I interpreted it because I was just seventeen and just cocky and just like. Oh, I can do anything. And then just, yeah, I mean, I needed that to happen. I absolutely needed that to happen. But at the time, obviously hideous. So, yeah, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll turn the tables now and maybe go a bit more positive. Uh, remind me of the name of the, the, the club in Luton, that first one. It was a hat, something hat? The Hat Factory. The Hat Factory. So you've arrived. You've nowhere to put your coat. There's the angry comedian. Was ve- was very angry. Tons of kids on the floor, sitting cross-legged. You're about to go on stage. If I could take you today and put yourself back there and give yourself a minute or two, what do you think you'd say to yourself um, looking back now? Oh, that's an interesting question. Uh, I think it would just be, I mean, to be honest, I probably said this to myself at the time. It would just be, you got to do this and you got to, it's good that you're doing it now because if you don't do it right now, you will wait another 10 years, but you can get that 10 years out of the way. So I'd just be like, if this is ripping a plaster off, just do it. It doesn't matter. You're never going to see anyone in this room again. So who cares? Just just go and say what you want to say. But I would be like, maybe maybe don't go ao so much, and make sure that when you put your coat down on the drum kit, you clarify that it was purely for logistic reasons and wasn't a power play. Well, look, that's a that's a great place to leave it, uh, Reese. Thank you so much for chatting with your first gig today. Oh, thanks, mate. Thank you so much for having me. So there we go, episode 22 in the books. Reese James, thank you for recording that over two years ago and waiting so patiently in the vault. He himself was waiting in the vault and now he can finally go home. I'm sure his girlfriend and his family are delighted to have him back. And look, I was delighted to have him from all, for all that time. Uh, Reese is fantastic. You've probably seen him on TV. Uh, one of the bigger, uh, more prominent names on Mock the Week in recent years, as it just begins its final season now. A fantastic comic from the UK. He's just announced a tour uh, called uh, Spilt Milk, and all of those dates are on reesejames.com or .net. I'm going to do that thing where I pretend going, hey, edit in here. Reese James, search it online, his tour is kicking off all over the UK next year. If you want to support this podcast, go to patreon.com forward slash myfirstgigpod and for a euro or a fiver, support this pod and get early episodes, ad-free episodes and extended episodes and bonus episodes uh, coming soon to my first gig. 
Uh, I'm Dwayne Dugan. Follow me at Dwayne Dugan. Let's just, let's just, you know, we've been here a while. As I said, it's two o'clock in the morning. We're just so glad to be listening. Do I need to do this big outro? Is this shortchanging people? Should I tell you about my life? I'm still sick from last week. My nose is running. My throat is sore. My head is sore. I think I broke my toe. I was on a stag and I woke up and my toe was sore. And then I came home and my toe was blue. Did I kick something? Did something kick me? Who knows? I'm not going to go to the doctor to look at my toes though. It's just not going to happen. I've got hairy toes. Like the toes, the toes, the hair on my toes is the beginning of the hair journey that if I don't shave my neck, my toes, the hair goes right to my head. Is this information you want to hear? Like you've already sat through this entire podcast. If you're on the commute now and you're going to go, right, that's that interview. I'm going to wait for my podcast app to, to roll to the end of this. And then I'm just going to crack on to the next podcast I have downloaded. But yet this mother flipper is chatting about the hair on his toes and how it connects to his head. Then maybe, you know, maybe you're not the listener for me. And maybe I'm not the host for you. But guess what? So many people are in loveless relationships. How about we just be another one of them? Do you know? If you're loving this, well, thank you. I don't even need to tell you how much I thank you. Because we we just have it, you know? We just feel it. But if you don't feel it, pretend. Or I will show you my toes. That's a good place to leave it. Before I leave it, let me tell you about next week's guest... I, I, I see I, until I say this I don't know who next week's guest is going to be as I said they have been all recorded so I just need to go into my Rolodex and think about who's who's the next guest and I've decided now tune back next week see no one listens to this end bit do they And it, but those who do you get this little sneak peek so you shh, don't tell no one don't tell no one that next week next Wednesday or next Monday if you're on patreon.com for us that's my first gig pod or next Tuesday if you're on patreon.com for us Slash my first gig pod, but you pay the cheaper one. My guest will be none other than Mary Beth Barone. Recorded at the Paddy Power Comedy Festival in Dublin this year. Great podcast. Very funny comedian. Did a show with her and she absolutely rocked it. Was the only import on a show of Irish. And generally that's a far more kind of like Irish audience or like Irish leaning audiences so it's extra hard to break through that barrier and she did it with ease and was fantastic and the chat was fantastic also so tune in next week for that but until then I've been Dwayne Dugan I'll try to stay being Dwayne Dugan and you and me will meet back here next week and I'll see you then goodbye good night love yous platonically and sexually does that affect my ad scenes, actually? We'll see. Toodaloo. It's the My First Gig Podcast.
You've been listening to the My First Gig with Dwayne Dugan on Acast. Follow online at My First Gig Pod or at Dwayne Dugan. For classic episodes, ad-free, early access and more, head to myfirstgigpod.com. This is My First Gig with Dwayne Dugan, powered by Acast. Enjoy. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.